you knew when you went on a mission that once you left the helicopter and got on the ground that you were surrounded you know we're we're going to put you out there in the jungle the north vietnamese are going to surround you and then you get to see if you can get away uh, so so you you understood that mentally at least after the first time you you really understood that. I mean, that's the way this game is played. Welcome to Heroes Behind Headlines. I'm your host, Ralph Pizzullo. Our guest today is Henry L. Thompson, a.k.a. Dick Thompson, codenamed Dynamite, one of the heroes of the secret war in Vietnam. Like our previous guest, John Stryker Meyer, Dick was a distinguished member of the Military Assistance Command Vietnam Studies and Observations Group, a.k.a. MACV-SOG, a multi-service elite military unit of the Vietnam War so secret that its existence was denied by the U.S. government. The group reported directly to the Pentagon's Joint Chiefs of Staff, and much of its history and unconventional warfare operations were concealed from the general public for 20 years. Today, Dick, who grew up in a small town in South Carolina and has had a career filled with many accomplishments in and out of government, is going to share with us some of the most incredible stories of wartime courage you've ever heard. They come from his recently published must-read book, SOG, codenamed Dynamite. It's my great honor to welcome Dick Thompson as today's Hero Behind the Headlines. Heroes Behind Headlines with Ralph Pizzullo. Hi, Dick. Hi. Great to see you. Good to see you. Yeah. I love the book. Fantastic. I recommend it to everybody. Wow. It's got so much to it. A lot of important information. Great combat scenes that are just like unbelievable. In the end, uh, very inspiring. The 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 the, the courage, the, the mental toughness of of yourself and the men that you were in combat with, really remarkable. And also tells a very different story of of the Vietnam War that most of us have heard. So uh, congratulations. Well, thank you. Part of what I was trying to do with with the book was, in addition to showing how I got there was what happened when I got there. You know, what what do you go through? You know, because as a, a SOG team leader or one zero, I think my experiences were pretty similar to to everyone else's. Mm-hmm. Um so I wanted to just kind of lay out, you know, where I started. Yeah. And just be open and say, you know, I was scared. Yeah. This is what happened, and yeah. uh, here's what I learned from that, and what I had to do differently next time if I, you know, hope to survive, and what did I learn, and, you know, so you can see the transition across this first book of where I started out really in the back of my mind as a, not just a, a warrior type guy, but a chemist, Yeah, and using my chemistry lens to look at things, assess things with, but quickly realized 
there was a big role that psychology was playing. Oh, yes. Uh, in terms of being uh, a warrior, in terms of being a leader and leading other people in combat. Yeah. Um, so actually, in the second book, uh, you'll see where later I went back to school and instead of picking back up with chemistry, I changed to psychology mm -hmm. uh, because I, I thought that was so important. Yeah. So anyway, that's one reason I put uh, the after action reviews and things in there. So you could um, you could kind of see what was going on in my mind and how I was trying to learn mm -hmm. and then teach my guys, my little guy. Yeah. Uh, here's some here's some things about the NVA that that I've seen. I've learned since I've been here and I want to share that with you so that we can try to become a better team. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think that's the the strongest thing that came through for me was just the the clear focus that you had, sort of the analytical focus in the face of almost ungodly uh, circumstances and fear. I don't know where the mental toughness came from, but and we can talk about that later. And and I'm sure there was a lot of faith, spiritual dimension to that as well. We can talk about that at the end. Let, let's just get into the story of like, you know, where you came from, you know, the kind of background you had and how it led to you going to Vietnam and, <laughs> and volunteering for a unit like this. Okay. I came from a military family mm -hmm. uh, during World War II. I had five uncles and a father all deployed in World War II at the same time. Mm -hmm. And then when that was over, my father was called back in and went to Korea. And that's when I started really picking up on information because I was getting old enough then that I could I could hear, you know, my mother and grandmother and other wives talking about letters they were getting from their husbands and about what was going on, how cold it was, how deep the mud was, <laughs> things like that. And and I really started getting interested in the military. And then I had my, you know, uh, four uncles, because one of them uh, was actually killed in World War II. I had them to ask questions um, to and try to find out, you know, what is a platoon? What is a squad? What do they yeah. do? Yeah. You know, what happens? And and my grandparents lived on, on a farm, and later I, I did too. So hunting, fishing. And things like that uh, was something I was exposed to, you know, on a regular basis. Um, I found that I had a lot of freedom, even as, as a five-year-old, six-year-old, to go out in the woods by myself, to spend the night uh, in a little tent that I had outside, you know, of, by myself. Um, I started learning to uh, track animals, discover where they were. What is it? What is it that helps me find them? What do I need to do? Yeah. I was very curious about that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, if they're hiding and, and trying to be invisible, what are they doing? Yeah. And, and how can I overcome that? So, anyway, that, that kind of got me on the path of learning, you know, about tracking and, and being tracked, you know, because later I was able yeah. to say, if that's how I'm tracking animals or i'm tracking people yeah then they're probably doing the same to me i'm leaving footprints and things like that and by looking at those they can tell if i'm carrying a load which way i'm going how fast i'm going how many people are with me mm -hmm. and i i just found all of that 
fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. If you listen to nature, it, it can tell you a lot. Yeah. And the sounds, you know, <laughs> yeah. learning yeah. Uh, that there are a lot of sounds out there and, and that come and go. And there are reasons for that. That's right. Uh, when they hear me, they get quiet. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, the birds fly away. There are all kinds of pieces of information and data out there. Uh, once you figure out that that's what it is, then you can use that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as I um, continue to to get older, I decided to start my own army. Um, so I uh, formed Thompson's Rangers using <laughs> <my> cousins <laughs> and, and a few other friends. It wasn't yeah, just yeah. relatives, but... Uh, I used to do the same thing. And I said, I have the... Uh, I, I have the um, the logbook, you know, because mm-hmm. we had to have a logbook to yeah, yeah. keep everybody's name in. And I, I still have that thing at home now. It's hard to read some of the pages, but <laughs> so anyway, we we did that. And as I grew, I became more and more interested. You know, you know, and I did a lot of hunting, a lot of shooting. So, you know, I was uh, very good in the woods, particularly with weapons. Uh, and then. My path was sabotaged when I was 13. I got a chemistry set for Christmas. <laughs> and I had, you know, I, I used to watch the monster movies uh, and things like that. And I, I would see, like, they would be building Frankenstein and right. changing and putting a new brain in and hooking him up to electricity or lightning strikes, whatever. You know, so I was trying to do that with birds and rats and swap their brains <laughs> around and you know, hook electricity up to them. I just, I could, I could do the swap. I just couldn't get them working again. And I swapped some of the hearts, but I just had trouble uh, starting them back. So yeah, um, I really got into chemistry and throughout high school and ended up going to, to the university, um, you know, on a chemistry scholarship because I wanted to be a research uh, chemist. But every night at, five o'clock the news would come on yeah you know the national news would come on and they would always have a big segment on this is what happened in vietnam today yeah so i'm watching that and thinking wow this is a pretty significant thing yeah and i probably should go there and do my part yeah so i i made (laughs) i made the decision that uh i'm gonna i'm gonna take a short break from school, mm-hmm. go to Vietnam, do my thing, come back, and then, you know, uh, finish out the, the schoolwork. My father thought it was kind of cool. My mother didn't like it at all. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, I, I did. I volunteered for the Army, joined, went in the Army, um, and right away, I really got hooked. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, it was really cool. I mean, all of a sudden, I was getting to to go out and use all kind of equipment. I was getting free ammunition and a rifle to shoot and just doing really cool things. But I was still working toward getting to Vietnam. So eventually. And you were a physically like gifted kid, right? You, you, cause you described playing football and you're like 150 40 or pounds. 40 pounds <laughs> and you're like a defensive lineman, right? But I, well, the defensive end, because defensive end, yeah, you know, I was, you know, I was on the track team too. And yeah, I was, I was a sprinter. Yeah. And I was, I was fat. I went to the state competition. You know, I was a sprinter. Uh, 
I could get from from that end position to the quarterback very quickly. Mm -hmm. Now, I had a really fast closing speed. I wasn't very big, uh, but, you know, four times velocity, yeah. um, you know, and, and I could hit, even with my light weight, I was traveling so fast, I hit you hard. Yeah. So I got used to that. And, and so, you know, when I got into basic training and AIT, you know, the physical part was easy. Mm-hmm. Push-ups, chin-ups, low crawl, whatever, you know, all of that stuff was easy. The weapons was were easy. And, and I I really just kind of ate it up. Yeah. And and uh, then they suggested that I go to OCS and become an officer. So I just said, "Oh, okay, I'll I'll go do that." Mm-hmm. Uh, and then then I got you know really exposed to Rangers and and the company that I was in, the, my barracks in OCS, was right next to the jump towers at Fort Benning, mm-hmm. where the guys going through airborne training. Yeah, they were being dropped from those towers. I was seeing those guys every day, and I was, I need to do that. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. that's yeah. part of it. If you want to be an airborne ranger, yeah, uh, you need to go to airborne school. And that's it. I, and I could be a ranger, you know, if I went to that training. I mean, I'm I'm going to be here three years. Yeah. So why not? You yeah, know, yeah. and then then I learned more about special forces, and I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, I volunteered for airborne school, volunteers for special forces, went to Fort Bragg after airborne school, was assigned the third special forces group. The third group was targeted toward Africa. Each yeah. each group had its own geographical target area. Mm-hmm. Third group was Africa. I was put on a team. We were preparing for a mission to Africa, and and I I told the, the commander, I said, you know, Africa's fine, but I really joined the army to go to Vietnam. <laughs> yeah. So I I put in a volunteer statement to go to Vietnam, and you know, they were hungry for people who would say, I want to go to Vietnam. Right. I'm sure. Uh, but, you know, I got orders to Vietnam right away. Yeah, yeah. So, you met a friend in in training as well. A couple. Yeah, times. I yeah. I met a guy very early on, and I mean, we spent. I mean, Bob Sheridan, and you know, we spent the next almost two years just attached it to hip. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that that the military used to do, and I think they still do, is. They do everything alphabetically. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so Sheridan and Thompson, I mean, right. we were in the same squad together. Every time we did something, we were always right together. Yeah. And and we were going to the same training, the same school, and ended up, uh, three of us uh, rented a, a trailer at Fort Bragg, and we the three of us kind of stored our gear there for the most part, because we were always out in the field. But, you know, so we'd been together. I uh, went to uh, Vietnam and both made an independent decision to join SOG, even though they wouldn't tell us exactly what it was. Yeah. And everybody was telling you, don't, when they ask you that. Yeah. We had a, a friend there who said, don't do that. You know, yeah. do not volunteer for SOG. If you do, <laughs> yeah. you're going to die. Yeah. And if you don't die, uh, you're going to get all shot up and you're going to come back a nutcase. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then you go in and you talk to the 
to the guy who's making the assignments and and he offers you this job that you can volunteer for, but I can't tell you what it is. Yeah. I can't tell you what they do. You have to go do it to know what it is that they do. Mm-hmm. Oh, and you have to sign a, a non-disclosure agreement that says for 20 years, you're not going to say anything about where you went and what you did. Yeah. Um, and so you're, you have to volunteer to go anywhere, do anything and not tell anybody for 20 years. Wow. I mean, to a, a 20 year old, I mean, that's a recruiting poster. Hey, this is the coolest thing in the world. Right. You can't even talk about it. Yeah. But yeah. you, you probably don't want to do that. Oh yeah. I, I'm volunteer for that. Yeah. I can do that. Yeah. So, and Bob and I both, uh, you know, made, made that same decision in, you know, independently They talked to us one at a time. And, uh, yeah, we went, <laughs> uh, went to, uh, eventually up to Da Nang mm-hmm. at, um, CCN and got briefed on what it was, you know, SOG really did. Yeah. Um, didn't really surprise us in terms of what they did. I guess the biggest surprise was where they did it. Yeah. Because everybody thought, even even us, we thought that we were, you know, in Vietnam to fight in Vietnam like everybody else. Established on 24 January 1964, all-volunteer MACV SOG, most of whom were U.S. Army Special Forces Green Berets, carried out some of the most dangerous and challenging special operations of the Vietnam War. MACV SOG operators made high-altitude, low-opening parachute jumps behind enemy lines, routinely carried out reconnaissance missions along the Ho Chi Minh Trail, penetrated deep into Laos and Cambodia, recovered downed pilots, and attempted several POW rescues behind enemy lines known as bright light missions. Ranging deep behind enemy lines, MACV SOG teams executed an intensified program of harassment, diversion, political pressure, capture of prisoners, physical destruction, acquisition of intelligence, and generation of propaganda, which forced Hanoi to divert 40,000 troops, about four divisions, to rear security missions along the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Vietnam was really just, you know, our our uh, our base camp. It's where we stored our gear. It's where we came back to to recuperate, train for the next mission, mm-hmm. things like that. But the missions were actually in other Southeast Asian countries. Yeah, you know, Laos, Cambodia, North Vietnam. What you know, but we were going out to other places to do the actual missions. We would use Vietnam to practice and training because yeah it was easy in vietnam to get um live fire shoot back targets that moved around yeah <laughs> so that was a lot a lot more efficient training than what yeah. we had, had so far in the military so that was pretty cool mm-hmm. most of the action was in other countries too right. that's where the yeah. that's where the north vietnamese were there were a ton of them over there uh and you know 40,000 or so that were specifically trained as anti-SOG teams to try to hunt us down and kill us. Wow. Um, And, you know, it was, you knew when you went on a mission, 
that once you left the helicopter and got on the ground, that you were surrounded. Yeah. And it's kind of like um, jujitsu and in, in some of the other martial arts where you get down on the floor and your opponent gets to get his best grip on you to start with, and then you try to get... Well, that was kind of the way it was. Yeah. You know, we're we're going to put you out there yeah. in the jungle. The North Vietnamese are going to surround you, and then you get to see if you can get away. <laughs> um, so so you you understood that mentally, yeah. at least after the first time, you yeah. you really understood that. I mean, that's the way this game is played. Yeah. And uh, their intent is to, to kill you. Yeah. So, so you've got to figure out how to get away from that. And... No, it was uh, it, it was exciting. Very, yeah. But it was it was different, you know. I, yeah, I, you know, had some encounters, you know, in, in my teenage years where, you know, a, a shotgun or something might have been fired at me a time or two for something I shouldn't have been doing. But right, I wasn't prepared for what was really going to happen. Yeah. What is so important, it seems to me, in SOG was the was the air support that you had, right? Yes. And and so there's just a, a small group of you, usually a small group going in. If you could talk mm-hmm. about that for a minute. Yeah, I, normal team mm-hmm. supposedly had uh, like nine indigenous members, Vietnamese or mountaineers or whatever, and three Americans. Mm-hmm. So if you had a full strength team, you had twelve people. Rarely did anyone have a full strength team. Yeah. Um, and then most people took a small team when they went out. Like, uh, I like to have like six people, maybe seven mm-hmm. uh, total that we go out with. Um, John Strackermeyer, you he was, he and I were very, same, we worked the same places, same time, mm-hmm. knew each other. Uh, he liked the smaller teams too, because mm-hmm. a lot of times you could you could get the whole team on one aircraft. Yeah, so you could just go in in with one. Uh, it it was easier to remain undetected, you know, with a smaller group. Uh, plus, after you went on a couple of missions, everyone wasn't physically able to go back out anyway. Yeah, because you have people getting wounded, you have people getting killed. Yeah. Uh, so things are happening. So you've got people uh, recovering from their wounds and things, and not able to go on a mission. Yeah. You kind of rotate people around who are physically able to go, uh, and the same with Americans who are getting killed, wounded. I mean, most probably most of my missions, I was the only American on the team uh, that that went out. Yeah. And that, you know, so that would kind of vary. I had Americans in the beginning. I had Americans like toward the end. But the rest of the time, it was mostly me and uh, and the indigenous guys. Yeah. And and you would depend a lot on air support. Yeah. When when you went out there, I mean, people, people ask all the time, how can you take a six or seven man team and go out and attack uh, a 500 man uh, North Vietnamese battalion. How can you do that? And <laughs> right. and I a good question. <laughs> I've always told him. I said, well, um, the good news is, five hundred people 
uh, are pretty easy to find. If you got a group of 500 stumbling around out there in the jungle, I mean, it doesn't take you long to find them. Yeah. And then the advantage that a SOG team had was we had the radio and we had the world flying behind us. Yeah. And once we did get in contact and and call for air support, everybody showed up. Yeah. Um, and and if you, it was bad enough that you call what, what we termed uh, prairie fire emergency, you became the number one priority in all of Southeast Asia. Wow. So all of a sudden, anything that was flying within range of where your team was and still had ordnance on board was diverted to you. Yeah. So, I mean, it was just unbelievable the number of gunships and jets and you know, planes and everything that, you know, all of a sudden showed up and say, here we are. Where, what do you need? Where you want us to put this stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. I mean, it, it was. I mean, you know, I see, I see, uh, you know, videos and things from the Gulf War and other places. I, you just don't see anything comparable in terms of the air support that would show up. Yeah. I, I mean, it, you you might have 15, 16 gunships on station, four or five F-4 Phantoms on station, uh, four or five A-1Es or, or A-1s on on station, all just for you. Yeah. And they're just rotating in and, you know, expanding their ordnance. They go back, rearm, refuel, and, and come back. So uh, it's not two or three aircraft show up or two or three gunships show up. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the world shows up and you can do a lot of damage <laughs> yeah and you're in the position of not only fighting and defending yourself but also calling in airstrikes yeah so there's a lot of multitasking going on oh yes i mean you had you had a forward air controller that had what we call a, a covey fighter mm-hmm. inside the aircraft and, and the covey rider was a, a former you know sog team leader mm-hmm. who had run a bunch of missions and understood what what you were saying and what was going on and and what you needed mm-hmm. and you know so you could talk back and forth to him uh he would try to keep you calm assure you that you know they had more stuff coming where do you want it right um the forward air controller and the aircraft could talk to the air force assets that were coming in because they used different radios mm-hmm. the cubby could talk to you know the marines the army all those guys uh, coming in to support us, and sometimes they would they would turn um, the communication over, you know, to me mm-hmm. as a one zero, mm-hmm. and let me talk directly to the gunships or whatever, and say, you know, this is where I want it. Yeah, and you know, trying to be uh, very accurate in terms of what I'm telling him. Very and, accurate. It's it's yeah, amazing and, how and pinpoint I, accurate. Yeah, because yeah. I worked up north a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, where the jungle canopy was really thick. We'd have mm-hmm. double, sometimes triple canopy jungle. So it, it was hard for them to see us. Yeah, um, We could shoot a, a small flare sometimes up through the canopy so the aircraft could see it from above. And they knew we were underneath there somewhere right in that area. Yeah, And I, I could tell him, uh, you know, put it, you know, 100 meters, 150 meters, whatever. Uh, north of that flare, 
uh, coming in from east to west or whatever. And I would usually try to tell them this is where I want it, you know, and the, the pilot's making his his best guess at how to put it right where I'm asking for it. Uh, and then, you know, as as a team leader, I'm underneath there. I can't see him. I'm underneath all this stuff. Yeah. Realizing that look, bombs, napalm, things like that are going to go off up in the trees. Yeah. If you're down south where it's much more open, they can put it right on the ground, right on the bad guys. But if right. if you're under double, triple canopy jungle, it's got to get through that canopy. Even the even the bullets yeah. have to make it through. They're shooting off limbs, hitting trees, ricocheting all over the place. All that's happening, and you're trying not to, to put it on top of you. Yeah. What's incredible is how effective a system it was. Yeah. Whoever designed it, 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 it was really like very clever because as dangerous as it was and as crazy it's, as it sounds to just a civilian, right? It did work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you had the, the one zero, the, the team leader yeah. or the team. Which, which was interesting you mentioned in your book is not determined by rank. Right. So I, you know, I, I was a lieutenant, but I was put on a team that had a, a staff sergeant as the team leader. Yeah. So I had to, to go out, and, and he did a great job. Yeah. I had to go out with him as the assistant team leader, the 1-1, one, one, yeah. uh, and carry the radio, but go with him on several missions to learn uh, the techniques and the process and how to be a team leader out there and use the assets and everything that we had yeah um, so he was kind of like training me yeah well this is clearly not something that you could just throw somebody into right because it was so unique yeah there's just a, a lot of things uh it, you know like in my case um i had a lot of training uh, adjusting artillery yeah but i had never uh, you know worked with a gunship before yeah, you know, so all these Air Force and everything assets that were coming in, I'd never done that. Yeah, you know, so I had to learn, and I think you can see in the book, you know, he let me talk a little bit. He would tell me what what to uh, to say. Since SOG was so secret that the U.S. government denied its existence, SOG operators like Dick were not allowed to carry anything that could identify themselves when they deployed on missions. That meant no dog tags, no photos, no personal items, nothing. Instead of names used to identify themselves in case they were deployed into Laos and Cambodia and were wounded and needed to be rescued, they used code name. Dick chose dynamite because he liked to blow up things as a teenager, including a neighbor's windows, and he figured he would be blowing up bridges bad guys and ammunition dumps in Southeast Asia. True to his code name, Dick carried extra Claymore mines and C4. I got more and more comfortable talking, you know, to the aircraft, talking to Covey, uh, telling him what we needed, where we needed needed it. Uh, so I was learning that. I was learning um, how to lead, how do you set up at night, um, what the jungle sounds were like. And and one of the other things 
that that I seem to have was I had what I call spidey senses. Mm-hmm. I had night vision, you know, like an owl or something. I mean, it was wow. amazing how well I could see in the dark. Yeah. Taste, smell. Yeah. I could hear those silent dog whistles before the first mission I went on. Uh, so my ears were great. Yeah. And that really helped me because I got to the point where I could smell uh, the NVA. Wow. I could, you know, I could smell um, what they had had for breakfast or uh, or whatever. Wow. With spices and things. Yeah. Uh, I could pick up the smell. If I was a little downwind and they were up in front of us and going to ambush us or coming toward us, I could smell. It's like a superpower. And, and later on, and you'll see, and particularly in the second book, you know, I, I had put together a set of standard operating procedures, things like you can't use any soap, shaving cream, anything starting three days before a mission. Yeah. Because they have, the North Vietnamese have noses too. Right, right. And when you show up, you know, with an odor that they're not familiar with, yeah, they very quickly say, wow. American. There, yeah. There's some Americans <laughs> out there. So they start to smell you. Sure. And, um, so... Uh, anyway, I incorporated a lot of things like that into the, the training that we were doing. But this first mission, yeah, uh, you know, I'm I'm carrying a, a car 15. It's a, a kind of like a shortened version of a M16, um, and really, uh, my load bearing equipment that had my ammunition and grenades and uh, some water and stuff on it weighed 30 to 35 pounds mm-hmm. my rucksack um counting the radio was more like 75 pounds wow and you know i'm 140 pounds i almost have my weight yeah that i'm carrying with me yeah um and our mission was we were going to go out they had dropped a, a large bomb and blown a, a pretty good sized hole in the jungle canopy and we were going to fly out and just sit down inside that hole. We would jump off the the helicopter and run into the jungle and and go do a, a wiretap mission. And so anyway, uh, we go out there and we're coming in on the short final. The skids on the helicopter just really almost touching the treetops, uh, which are very tall, but they're touching it. We're going very slow. You know, half the team's on the skid over on one side, and and then the other half's over with me. And I'm thinking, we're going so slow, and North Vietnamese could throw a rock up here and knock me off the skid. Yeah. Um, this is making me pretty nervous. And I, I looked down, and I, I saw what looked like a small village of about seven or eight little thatch-roofed hutches down there. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, that wasn't in the briefing. Yeah. No one told us there was a village right next to where we were about to go in. Yeah. So anyway, I had to refocus back and we get to the hole and we start to settle down in there and the, the rotor blades are about to hit the, the trees. Jeez. It's just getting dark. And then he stops, the pilot stops, and now it's time to get off and it's still about six feet down to the ground. <laughs> And I'm carrying, you know, 90 pounds or so, and I'm thinking, oh, wow, that's a 
that's a long way <laughs> to jump with all this weight on. Yeah. And then I decided, you know, I just, I just got to suck it up and do it. Right. You know, so I, I bent my knees, uh, the other American next to me bent his knees so that we could jump. But out of the corner of my eye, I saw a, a North Vietnamese soldier stand up with an AK-47 pointed right at So instead of jumping into the crater, I actually pushed up and back and got my rear end back up on the edge of the floor of the helicopter. And I put a half a magazine in, in the NVA, but he fired first. And the bullets came right where my legs had been, you know, a yeah. second or half a second before and hit the guy next to me. Wow. Hit him in the legs. But he starts to fall. Um, and I, I got him by the back of his uh, load bearing equipment with a lot of adrenaline and jerked him and got his rear end up. But, you know, blood spurting out all yeah. over the place. And, yeah. you know, and I'm, I'm still shooting. I emptied that magazine. Um but then when I went to get a, a fresh magazine, I couldn't get it out of the pouch. Mm. They were packed in so tight, my hand was just soaked in blood, and it made my hand real slick. I couldn't pull the magazine out. And there's probably 30-plus NVA just kind of circle around that bomb crater shooting at us. Nothing between me and them but air. Yeah. And the bullets are just coming everywhere. The two Cobras that are coming in with us have opened up with their mini guns. So it's, it's just solid tracers is what it looks like coming in, hitting the ground, ricocheting, all the NVA shooting. The door gunners are both shooting the machine guns. I've got two people, little guys next to me with car 15s one on each side of my head, and I'm getting some powder burns from, from that. And I, you know, the... Other American rolling around on the floor, screaming, the blood going everywhere, and hot brass going everywhere, and you know, all the shooting going on. And I was thinking in the back of my head, you know, I'm I'm not happy. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, it, you know, it, you've got to understand. I trained for two years yeah. to come over here yeah. and take out some bad guys and make a difference. Yeah. And the way things are going right now, I'm going to die in the first 15 seconds of battle. Yeah. This is not what I signed up for. <laughs> right. So I'm not happy. And, right. man, I can't get the stupid magazine uh, in my weapon. I finally did. But, yeah. holy cow. Yeah. Um, what an introduction. Yeah. I experienced a, a level of fear that was so far beyond anything that I had ever imagined. Mm -hmm. uh, it just, you know, that was shocking and educational uh, that you could get that scared and that when it ran your stress level up like that you began to lose your fine motor skills uh -huh. trying to put a magazine in the weapon uh was very difficult because you just you couldn't do that yeah and getting it out of the pouch particularly the first one um you know you just lost all those skills uh, your vision, I discovered later when I figured out what was going on, your vision changes. All of a sudden, you can't focus. You can't focus on the sights. Yeah. But you've been trained for two years, and for the most part, to good sight picture. Yeah. Good sight alignment. And now right. you can't even see your sights. Right. Um, but anyway, a lot of things like that, Wow. you know, I realized from from that first battle. I mean, we, we did get out of there. Yeah. 
And uh, when we got back, I had an interesting conversation with the team leader where I, I, I told him, I said, I, I'm just curious. While we were down in there, how many magazines did you empty yeah. while we were in, in that hole? I mean, it seemed like we were there for 30 minutes, but it was probably more like two. Yeah. Um, and he said, well, I had emptied five. I started on number six. I threw two fragmentation grenades and a smoke grenade. And I'm thinking, no, I wasn't even close to that. And I didn't throw any grenades. Yeah. And then he looked at me and he said, let me tell you something, Lieutenant. If you don't learn to change magazines faster when people are shooting at you, you're going to die. <laughs> I said, copy that. You know, that. Yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, <laughs> I will definitely be doing some practicing tomorrow. Yeah. Wow. Because <laughs> I it just, I, nobody had ever told me those things are going to happen. Right. They just said, yeah, well, you'll be scared. Right. You know, you have butterflies in your stomach. They never talked about, you know, losing your fine motor skills, your vision, all that stuff. Right. Wow. Yeah. And now you have to sort of quickly learn these lessons or sort of uh, assess how you've performed under this incredible, incredible stress Yeah, and sort of get ready for the next mission. Yeah, because there's another one coming. I mean, we we went back and we're debriefed by the Intel guys. You know, we had a day to kind of get our act together and then we were assigned another mission to start preparing for. Yeah. And... uh, and mentally, how how do you how do you cope with that? How how do you just not say, uh, "Get me the hell out of here"? <laughs> well, I had signed an agreement that I would go on six missions or <laughs> or, or six months, and I, yeah. I I do think about that a little bit in terms of wow, that's just one, yeah, and I. I don't know how I survived that one. I barely survived that one. We didn't even get on. You never even got on the ground, right? No, I, I never. My feet never touched the ground. Yeah, and I almost died right there. So, um, I, I was, well, I have to get better. Yeah, I have to do what the team leader said. Yeah, I've got to change magazines faster. So I started talking to people. How do you get your magazines out? They're so tight. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, one technique I, I discovered was you take a piece of parachute cord, uh, you, you cut a, you know, six or seven inch piece of parachute cord off and get some duct tape and you make a little loop at the top of the, the magazine big enough you can stick your finger underneath, mm. tape it down. So mm. now when you reach in that pouch, you can just hook your finger on it and you can you can pull that first one right out. Once you get the first magazine out then of it's that loose, pouch, the looser. Yeah. yeah. The rest yeah. of them will come right on out. Yeah. Yeah. So oh. just, just a know, little thing like that. Asking yeah. questions. And yeah. the, um, the green beret lounge that we had there at Fubai, uh, was like a training center. Mm-hmm. You know, you go in there in the evening, uh, when people in there, you know, uh, drinking beer, whatever, and talking Yeah, and you, you know, I would go to the older guys who had been older in the sense they'd been there longer than me and ask them questions. Yeah. And, you know, you get things like one of the NCOs told me uh, we were we were having a, a cold drink and, and he told me, he said, let me let me tell you something, Lieutenant. When you go out there, never 
ever shoot an NVA one time. Yeah. Always three or four times. You pull that trigger three or four times and you make sure he goes down hard. And if he twitches when he hits the ground, you shoot him three or four more times. Yeah. Because you wouldn't believe how many SOG guys have been killed by supposed dead NVAs and they're they're not. You make yeah. sure they are. So so I was getting tutored, coached, you know, from people not on my team. Yeah. Um, you know, of course my my team leader, you know, was giving me a lot too. But I I was just asking anybody that had experience and had been out there, how do you do this? How do you do that? Yeah. Uh, and you know, they were all sharing and I was learning and and you're soaking it up because yeah. you know I'm going out in a couple more days and 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 I want to be ready this time yeah. or better prepared this time. Yeah. Yeah, I I didn't mention when I first when I first got up to the uh FOB1 um the next morning I, they had sent me over to the supply room and the supply sergeant there said I, you know we have a mission for you uh, we had a team uh, who were all killed. Mm. Oh, yeah. And, and we have all their uh, personal effects here in yeah. duffel bags. They've been bagged up. Uh, but they have to be um, vetted that there's no, there's no uh, classified information in there. Mm -hmm. And we need an officer to do that, someone who can dump the bags out, go through everything is there, letters, pictures, whatever. Yeah. Uh and and certify that yeah, there there's nothing in that bag. These things can be sent home. Yeah. And then that's where first bag I picked up was a, a good friend of mine and Bob's from Fort Bragg who had come over four weeks ahead of us. Oh my God. We didn't know where he went. We just yeah. never heard from him again once he yeah. got in country. Yeah. Uh, and all that's the first bag I pick up. Wow. And boy, you know, SOG became real yeah. quickly. You know, yeah, yeah. Here's, here's my here's my buddy. Uh, and he's been here four weeks and I'm sending all his personal effects on. Yeah. Holy cow. Yeah. And you know, so yeah. that that got my attention. Yeah, what a Yeah, I I need to go practice changing magazines. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Doing a lot of a lot of training, a lot of practicing, going to the range. And one of the problems that we had was that at Fupai we didn't have a jungle. Yeah. So you know, we went out and trained, did our uh, immediate action drills, but we didn't have a jungle to train in. Yeah. So doing all this stuff in a wide open level field is not the same as doing it in the jungle where there's trees and vegetation and you can't see each other, you know, and I didn't have that uh, with the first team to, to help really build the skills like I would like to have. The missions Dick and other SOG operators went on were as dangerous as they were daring. Not one of MACB SOG operators known to have been captured in Laos was ever released. Of the 58 MACB SOG MIAs in Laos, only one returned. Charles Wilklow, who managed to crawl off into the jungle and evade recapture after being staked out, 
by the North Vietnamese army as human bait. Incredibly, MACV's SOG recon casualties exceeded 100%, the highest sustained American loss rate since the Civil War. In September 1968 through January 1970, when Dick was active in Vietnam, every MACV SOG recon man was wounded at least once, and nearly half were killed. Despite such high losses, MACV SOG boasts the highest kill ratio in U.S. military history, topping out at an incredible 158 to 1 in 1970, making them the stuff of legends. Let's go on to the second mission. And this time you had to switch out one of the Americans, right? Because the guy who was yeah. who had been seated next to you. And he, he lived, right? He survived. He, he lived. Um, and he had what <laughs> what they refer to sometimes as the million dollar wound. Oh. It was bad enough that he was uh medevac back to the States. So but it ended his his tour. I mean, he recovered and everything. Yeah. Um, but it was, it, you know, it was going to take take a while and and some physical therapy to get him walking again. So right, right. sent him back. Yeah. Um, and so you just plug in a new guy. You stick in a new guy, and off you go. <laughs> wow. wow! 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 If you if there's a new guy to, available. Yeah. And you know, a lot of times you didn't have a new guy. Yeah. So you just work with what you've got. You you went with two guys or, you know, in my case, a lot of times I went with one guy, just me. Yeah. And an indigenous group. Yeah. But I, you know, I kind of, I got, so I like that. Yeah. Because it, I just needed to focus on my little guys. Yeah. And they were very capable. They were very, they were very good. Uh, And they were a lot lighter. Um, to carry or drag if they got hit, yeah. you know, than a big American. Yeah. I mean, most Americans were bigger than me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, my, my buddy, uh, John Stryker Meyer, Tilt. Yeah. Uh, I used to ask him, you know, I mean, he's six two. And I used to ask him, how can you survive out there? You're so tall. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and he said, well, I'm not that tall when I'm on my hands and knees crawling. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, we're about the same height when we do that. <laughs> and I'm sure the Vietnamese were more f- familiar with, with, the, with the terrain and the, and the heat oh, yeah. and dealing with yeah. all of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was their backyard, yeah. so to speak. They, right, right. They knew what was there. They knew how to operate in it. Yeah. And and they were I mean they were dedicated and they were they were hard guys. Yeah. And we should also mention that the helicopter pilots, the King Bee pilots, were Vietnamese. Right. M- most of the time, right? Yeah. Yeah. The King when we used the CH thirty four, the King Bees, yeah, they were uh, Vietnamese. And um they were they were hard. Yeah. I mean they just do incredible things. Uh, to come get you, yeah, and take you out, and uh, in in the second book that's coming out, there's a whole uh, story in there about um, Captain On and some of his exploits, and uh, mm-hmm. yeah, just incredible. Wow. All 
All right, so let's talk about the second, the second mission, which was a search and destroy mission. Your team's RT Alabama. Right. Yeah. This was a, like a search and destroy that we went out on, and mm-hmm. we had to, you know, we got in. Okay, we didn't get ambushed this time going in. Right, so you're on the ground. So we're on the ground. This this was my first real experience in that type of jungle. I'd been down in the Everglades in Florida and stuff like that, but yeah, this is different. Yeah, yeah, very different. Yeah. And, um, a lot of sounds. And, you know, so I, I started listening and, you know, what are the sounds that I hear? Where are they? What do they mean? Um, and this was my first night in the jungle mm-hmm. and watching it get dark. Yeah. It got really dark. Yeah. You know, at first, you know, that created some stress and, and some fear about, wow, I can't see them. Yeah. And they're probably out there looking for us, but I can't see them. And and then finally, you know, I had this blinding fast uh, flash of the obvious. And I said, if I can't see them, they can't see me. Yeah. You know, because neither side had the night vision goggles like, you know, special ops guys have today. Yeah. And I said, I, but I do see pretty well in the dark most of the time. I might have a little advantage, but Mm -hmm. uh, the other thing is they're moving. If they're coming to try to find us, they're moving. We're not. They're making noise. If they're making noise, I know where they are. Yeah. So they have a real disadvantage if they're trying to sneak up on us. Now, if it's pouring down rain, which it did, you know, on a fairly regular basis, um, it's more difficult to hear them coming. But yeah. still, after after this mission, the night had become my friend, the darkness. I really right. got so I look forward to it getting dark. Yeah. Because it thought that gave us an advantage because we would go into our remain overnight position and set up in a small little perimeter, everyone facing out. We'd put claymores out on the likely avenues. of. Okay, let's talk about the claymores because they're, they seem to be critical to your success, the claymore mines. The claymores really became one of my favorite weapons. Mm-hmm. A claymore is... Um, it's not it's not very big mm-hmm. but inside the claymore is a, a pound and a half of c4 explosive wow and 700 steel balls and it has a wire uh has a blasting cap on the end of it that you put in it mm-hmm. and you 100 feet of wire and a, a little uh clackers what they were called that you squeeze the handle on it and it generates some electric current that runs down the wire and sets off the blasting cap that sets off the claymore and you have this tremendous explosion 700 steel balls traveling at 1000 feet a second wow coming at you so it will get your attention yeah so you put several of these out and the other thing that happens is when it goes off you still don't know where I am. Yeah. I mean, you, you see this ball of fire and they, they assume that you are probably right behind it somewhere. Right. 
And it's not uncommon for the survivors of the, the Claymore to start shooting in that direction because that's where they think you are. Mm-hmm. So you kind of set them off at a, a little angle and a little distance over here. So when they shoot, they're really not shooting into you. Yeah. Interesting. So I started learning uh, how to really use those from the team starting this on this particular mission because I, I haven't used them before. I'd played with them a little bit, but never really used them. Were they designed for, for, for that kind of thing, Dick? Or were they designed to be put in the ground? No, they, they, they're down, for the most part, level with the ground. They have little legs on them that you stick in the ground. Yeah. And it even tells you on the front of it, front toward enemy, so you don't turn it toward yourself. Right. Because <laughs> when the explosion happens, this is the direction that the bombs are going to go. Yeah. But if there are a lot of ways you can put trip wires on. There are a lot of ways you can detonate them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the guys on, on the team, one of the indigenous, was really good about cutting pieces of time fuse, crimping the blasting cap on it, um, and he'd put it in, in a claymore ignite the fuse as we were withdrawing from the bad guys ah. and all of a sudden one just randomly goes off and you know th- that psychologically starts to get their attention even if they're not the one if they're the ones in front of it you know they're shredded they're like a piece of swiss cheese yeah uh, but after that mission i started thinking why why just use one at a time yeah what if what if i daisy chain Two or three of them. Yeah. When I I set it off, you know, I, I've got twenty one hundred steel balls coming at you instead of seven hundred. Yeah, that's a lot of firepower. Yeah. You know, that's a lot of C four going off. Just a blast and the concussion from that will knock you out and kill you if you're close enough to it. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, in the book you can see that then I. I Eventually started moving to daisy chaining seven at a time. Mm-hmm. And that is it's just unbelievable when that thing goes off. Yeah. Just the blast from it and the, the number of steel balls going out. And I would put that, you know, seven of them daisy chained out on the most likely avenue of approach. And then I'd come back in a ways and I'd put three more daisy chained. So if you survive those seven and say, okay. This guy's crazy. We're going to go get him. All of a sudden, you get hit again, and now people are saying, "You go get him." I'm not. <laughs> yeah, this guy. Yeah, how many? Who knows how many more? Yeah, and how many? I mean, where is he getting all these claymores? Yeah. Uh, one of the things I, uh, it wasn't the Alabama wasn't my team, but I made some suggestions, and the team leader, uh, you know, incorporated some, and we. Instead of most people having one claymore in their rucksack, you know, they started carrying two. Yeah. So that gave us a lot more claymores. And by the time I got to uh, RT Michigan, where it was my team, yeah. Then I upped it. We're going to carry three claymores a piece. Yeah. So if you got a seven-man team. That's twenty-one claymores you got. Yeah. And um, instead of carrying five fragmentation grenades, we're going to carry ten. Mm-hmm. Now, if you got a seven-man team, you got seventy fragmentation grenades. Yeah. And the good thing about the claymore and the frag grenades is, 
if you use them at night, they don't know where they came from. Yeah. It's just all of a sudden there's a big explosion. Yeah. You know, if you pull the trigger on that car 15, they know exactly where you are because it lights you up like a neon sign. Yeah. But as long as you can use um, area type weapons like the claymore and, and the frag grenades, uh, you know, you, you've got a chance of slipping away, getting away from them. Yeah. Leaving yeah. little surprises with time fuses on it for them. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> and then you were learning things like uh, sort of how to sleep. So you had to sleep in positions where you could feel your, you were in contact with each other, right? Yeah, you had to have a, a small circle. You needed to be able to reach the person on your right and left. You know, because people are going to go to sleep, but you might start snoring. Yeah. And if you snore, I mean, you're going to give us away. Right. So I need to be able to reach over and wake up the guy next to me. He'll wake up and hear the snoring. He'll wake up the guy. And we'll eventually wake up the guy that's snoring. Or if we hear whoever is, is part of the security at, at that time, and we would keep a certain number of people awake all the time and rotate the other around. If you hear the bad guys coming, then you got to wake up the rest of the team. And and the technique was to reach over and grab the person next to you by their tricep, by the back of their arm, mm-hmm. and just slowly squeeze it. And what happens is as you squeeze that tricep, their eyes will just kind of open. Mm-hmm. And we would practice that you know, back at base camp so that you knew when you, your tricep was squeezed, don't jump. Yeah. Just open your eyes, see what you can see, what you can hear. And you'll hear if it's someone snoring or if there's someone approaching the team and making noise, you know, so you can kind of figure it out or it's your turn to, to be uh, on security. Yeah. But with a little practice, uh, you don't scare people after death. Right. Right. And you always had your car secured around you and your rucksack. Yeah. So you're leaning back against the rucksack. Most of the time you had your arms through the strap. So if you had to jump up and run, it would go with you. Um, You had usually your car 15 was laying kind of across your lap. uh, But you had a cord on that that was fastened to the snap link on your shoulder of your uh, load bearing equipment here. So mm-hmm. it was attached to you. If you jumped up and ran, it was going with you. You yeah. wouldn't lose it. Yeah. Um, but you would have it across. And then later, what I started doing was I, I was also carrying a twenty-two caliber pistol with an integrated um, silencer on it. And I would have that out so that if someone came walking into our perimeter, uh, last resort, I'd take him out, you know, with that 22. Yeah. You know, almost no flash coming out the end of it, almost no sound. So if I had to, I could do that um, and shoot him. Once you went down at night, no one stood up. Yeah. Anyone standing up on the ground was a bad guy. Yeah. Somebody's probably going to take you out. Wow. On the second mission, you, you run into the enemy. And then you have to get out. One of the things that you did, I mean, you tried to do what we call a visual reconnaissance to 
go out in, into the area, fly across the area, take pictures of it. But you were looking for a landing zone that you could be inserted into for the mission and any other areas that could be used as landing zones uh, to be able to be extracted from. Because mm-hmm. the you know, bad guys might chase you one way or another. And it, you wanted to have some pre-planned if you could. And Covey would already know where they were. So we had those, and I, I, I was starting to learn, particularly with with this second mission, starting to learn that getting in, getting inserted into the mission, most of the time uh, was relatively easy. Mm-hmm. I could get in there, yeah, but then I had to accomplish the mission, which was typically very difficult to accomplish. Yeah. But then I had to get out and getting out was almost impossible. Yeah. And it was almost every time you went out, it was like that. I can get in. Because when you accomplish the mission, often you were, you were giving up your position. You were giving up yeah. that you were there. So once, once they know where you are, uh, now they're coming after you. And it's like, it's like kicking the top off of an anthill. Yeah. And the ants just could, come pouring out. I mean, you might've made initial contact with, you know, 15 or 20 guys. Yeah. Now the 200 coming after you. Uh, <laughs> and, and they, you know, they're, they really intend to get you. Yeah. And one of the things that I discovered was, and, and I, I just said it was, if you're not moving when you're in contact, you're dying. Yeah. Because what's happened is once you stop moving, they will, start to come around they'll encircle you they'll cut you off they know where those clearings are that can be used for lz's uh if they have enough people they'll automatically start sending people to those lz's yeah in addition to trying to surround you like a big amoeba yeah just surrounding you and engulfing you yeah they'll send people out to those lz's to make sure that if you manage to get down there you're not going to get out yeah so you got to keep moving. Yeah. One of the things that happened, I guess, on the first mission debriefing, the intel guy kept asking me, so how, how many rounds did they fire at you? How many bullets did, did they shoot at you? And I told him, I, said, I have no clue. Yeah. Well, how many? I said, I don't know. I was busy shooting at the bad guys. Right. Not was- counting how many times they were shooting <laughs> me, but I can tell you, it was a whole bunch. Yeah. There was a whole bunch. And, you know, he didn't like my attitude, thought I got a little sarcastic. And, yeah. But later I started to find out that if I pay attention, not trying to count the bullets, but I can, I can tell by the volume of fire, uh, you know, the decibel level. Yeah. About how many people are shooting at me. Mm-hmm. And where they're shooting from. Yeah. Because if I stop moving, they'll start to maneuver. And now we got people shooting over here. And that lets me know they're trying to get around us. Yeah, that's scary. Trying to come around. And I can, you know, quickly learn to tell the difference between an AK-47 shooting and an RPD machine gun shooting. Mm -hmm. Big difference. Yeah. And if I'm hearing an RPD... There are a lot more people over there than I might have thought to start with. 
Yeah. Because they don't just send those out where they were three or four guys. Yeah. Now we've got a platoon or, or so or more, and I might hear more than one RPD um, telling me they're, they're continuing to reinforce and, and get bigger and bigger coming after us. Yeah. So there's a lot of intel, a lot of information I can use now to start to figure out where do we go? How do we get away from them? Yeah. Where do we really want the airstrikes and, and uh, gunships? Yeah. And all of this is playing out in your head in real time. There's no prior plan. I mean, maybe there is, but now you're just really improvising. Yeah. And, and one of the things in the book, it talks about adapt, adapt, adapt. Yeah. You can have the best plan in the world. But the problem is when you were sitting at the planning table, laying out your plan and working out the details of how you were going to do this, there were a couple of empty chairs at the table. Yeah. That was where the North Vietnamese should have been sitting. Right. Because what happens is since they missed the meeting, mm-hmm. they didn't know what they were supposed to do. Yeah. So what they do is just screw your plan up big time because they don't do what you anticipated that they were going to do because you didn't tell them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so now you've got this great plan, but as soon as your foot hits the ground uh, off of that skid, you got to start adapting. Yeah. Because they don't do exactly what you had planned for them to do. And there are eight of you or nine of you against, could be hundreds, and often was. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things, too, is like if if five or six guys attack you um, on the street or in the bar or something, uh, one of, and it's just you against yeah. four or five of them, one of the things that you try to do is keep moving try to keep them single file to the degree you can yeah so you're only fighting one at a time the guy that's in the front so when you're fighting yeah and see if you can deal with him and then you'll take the next one yeah but if you just stand there and let them circle you and all come at you at one time it's over it's over so uh you know if there's 200 out there coming at you all 200 of them probably can't shoot at you at the same time because they hit each other yeah they get kind of in front of each other and things 500 of them you know they have to start coming at you from some other directions Mm -hmm. but still you know i found if one person was shooting at me it was really irritating and scary Um, (laughs) you know i i didn't particularly like that (laughs) Uh, after a couple weeks it's come back and now my team is about to go out and do uh, what they were doing yeah, supposed to do and got shot down and killed before wow. uh, they were able to do it. Yeah. That kind of stunned me. Of course. Yeah. That was uh, Richard Fitz. Father was on that team, right? Yes. Fitz was on it. And, and when I was inventorying their bag, their duffel bags, I mean, you, you put one bag at a time on the table, spread everything out. You had to, you had to look through everything. You had to read the letters wow. that they had written back and forth. Uh, there were pictures. And, I mean, by the time you finish inventory one person's stuff, you have this mosaic of this person, their life, their interests, their conversations with their families, with, with, 
wives and yeah. kids and whatever and pictures. And, and so when I was looking at his, there was a picture there of a little um, two-year-old boy. Wow. And, you know, I thought, man, this is, there's just something about this picture. And, and reading the letters of him and his wife talking about uh, this little kid and starting to do things that little kids do. Yeah. All the stuff and how much he loved him um, and just, you know, got my attention. Dick had arrived in Vietnam in 1968 at the height of the war. At the end of January, the North Vietnamese Army and Viet Cong launched the infamous and bloody Tet Offensive, which extended into the end of September. A combined 80,000 VC and North Vietnamese troops struck more than 100 towns and cities in the South, including 36 of 44 provincial capitals, five of the six autonomous cities, and the southern capital of Saigon. Hanoi launched the offensive in the belief that it would trigger a popular uprising leading to the collapse of the South Vietnamese government. Although the initial attacks stunned the Allies, causing them to lose control of several cities temporarily, they quickly regrouped, beat back the attacks, and inflicted heavy casualties on North Vietnamese and VC forces. The Tet Offensive shocked the American public, which had been led to believe that the North Vietnamese were being defeated and incapable of launching such ambitious military operation. And 1968 proved to be the deadliest year of the war, with 16,592 U.S. soldiers killed and 27,915 of its South Vietnamese allies. North Vietnamese and VC losses were estimated to be almost 200,000. In part two of this interview, Dick Thompson will describe some of the incredible missions he led as the 1-0 of RT Michigan in January 1969. Heroes Behind Headlines. Executive producer Ralph Pizzullo. Produced and engineered by Mike Dawson. Orchestra and score provided by Extreme Music. Please comment, share, and subscribe to Heroes Behind Headlines.